Well, uh, for over 200 years now, the great scourge of the church in the West has been theological liberalism. The false teaching of theological liberalism has taken down once faithful churches, uh, Christian schools, seminaries, Christian universities, and even entire denominations. Now, to be clear, theological liberalism is different than political liberalism. I'm not talking about politics right now. You shouldn't be thinking politics when I say theological liberalism. I'm talking about a theology. I'm talking about something that happens inside Christendom, in the church, and in Christian academic circles. And we need a definition, right? We need a definition to know what we're talking about. One definition, uh, one that I found, one dictionary of theological terms defines theological liberalism this way. A movement in 19th and 20th century Protestant circles that builds from the assumption that Christianity is reconcilable with the positive human aspirations, including the quest for autonomy, theological liberalism desires to adapt Christianity to modern thought and culture. Does that definition clear things up for you? No, it doesn't clear it up for me either. Now, now here's the thing about that definition, okay? That definition, when, when you actually stop and you study it, everything that definition says is true, but it's not a helpful definition for us. And the reason it's not a helpful definition for us is because here at Grace Fellowship Church, we're doctrinal thinkers. We believe God has revealed Himself in Scripture uh, with clear propositions and truth statements that make wise the simple and restore the soul. Theological liberalism is more of a spirit. It doesn't claim to be doctrinal, or at least it's not motivated primarily by doctrine. Instead, it seeks to accommodate Christianity to the spirit of the age. And yet, as it accommodates Christianity to the spirit of the age, it lands on certain doctrinal positions. Uh, let me give you just two of them that are really important for uh, understanding theological liberalism. Number one, theological liberalism denies the inspiration, inerrancy, and authority of Scripture. Uh, it claims that the prophets and apostles wrote uh, books that have important spiritual value, yes, and, and, and they've inspired uh, people of faith for hundreds of years, and yet they would say that the authors of Scripture were uh, just uh, hu fallible human men who made mistakes and wrote some things that were un unreliable or not true or biased. Second, theological liberalism denies the deity of Jesus and His resurrection from the dead. They say that Jesus of Nazareth was just a man, period, full stop, that's it, just a man, and that He didn't rise from the grave. And one of the interesting things that… Uh, one of the interesting chapters or stories in theological liberalism is that in the 1800s, French and German academics who were theologically liberal decided to go on a so-called quest to discover the quote-unquote historical Jesus. Now, the assumption behind their quest was that we can't really trust the gospel accounts to give us an accurate picture of who Jesus of Nazareth really was. And in the early 1900s, one of their own, a man named uh, Albert Schweitzer, he wrote his own book on the quest for the historical Jesus, but he didn't want to just weigh in with his own opinion about who the historical Jesus was. He wanted to do a careful study of all that had come before him and give an analysis of that before he launched into his own opinion. And when he gave an analysis of what came before him, he almost destroyed the entire project. 
because he pointed out the very obvious fact that the so-called historical Jesus that these questers had discovered shared all the same opinions of the questers themselves. They'd gone out on a quest and found a Jesus who agreed with all of their sensibilities and opinions. Uh, In his book, Albert Schweitzer wrote this, each individual created a Jesus in accordance with his own character. So, doubting the historical records of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, theological liberals had done nothing more than create a Jesus of their own making. Now, unfortunately, even though Schweitzer's, uh, his insight uh, should have probably killed the project, unfortunately, the quest for the so-called historical Jesus, it hasn't died. It's still alive and well in theologically liberal academic circles, and you can see it on a popular level. It comes out every spring, every Easter. You can find this and read about it firsthand for yourself uh, in all the magazines that come out about the historical Jesus in Time and Newsweek and National Geographic. You can turn on the television and uh, find out about all the things they're saying currently about what they think uh, about the historical Jesus. You can find that on the Discovery Channel, the History Channel, and on Wondrium whenever you look at their documentaries on Christianity. And the whole project really is reminiscent of Voltaire's famous quote, God made man in His own image, and ever since then man has tried to return the favor. Now, Voltaire's observation is insightful, but he gets the timeline a little wrong. So, let's correct Voltaire for a moment, even though we really appreciate his insight into human nature. Uh, In the beginning, God created man in His own image, and there was a sweet time of fellowship between God and man in the Garden of Eden. But in Genesis 3, the image of God and man was marred. It wasn't completely destroyed or eradicated, but the image of God and man was marred by the disobedience of Adam. And the rest of the Bible from Genesis 3 onward is a story of God's redeeming plan to remake a new humanity remade back into His image, a humanity redeemed and remade into the moral image of God, rescued from ourselves. Not of, uh, the story of the Bible is not of man making God in man's own image, but of men and women being remade into God's image. And in the New Testament, that takes on an even sharper focus. It's not just that we get remade into the image of God. We get remade into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we uh, reflect His moral character. And that whole purpose of God in remaking us uh, with His redeeming plan back into His moral image, that's actually the subject of the prayer that we're going to study from the Apostle Paul today in Ephesians. Please turn in your Bible to Ephesians 3, verse 14. Uh, Ephesians 3, 14. We're in the middle of a study where we're looking at what we can learn from how Paul prayed for the Ephesians church. And last week, we discovered four principles from this prayer, uh, four principles for effective prayer. The first principle was this, pray in response to what God has revealed to us in the Bible. What moved Paul to offer this prayer wasn't his circumstances. It was what God had revealed to him as an apostle that he was then sharing with the Ephesians, but it led him into prayer. It moved him to offer up praise, but also particular request. It moved Paul what God has reve- had revealed to him as an apostle. And in fact, you find even with his praise that Paul considered it a privilege to be an apostle. I think this is very important. Paul considered it to be a privilege to be an apostle even though he was in prison at that particular moment. I was reflecting this week on 
If being a pastor lands me in prison, will I still say it's a privilege to be a pastor? Now, I'm not sure about that. I, want, I mean, I want to be the man who would, but uh, the Apostle Paul believes it's a privilege even to be an apostle, uh, and he breaks out even into praise at the end of this prayer, even though he's sitting in a Roman prison. But what moved him to pray, the observation is this, it's not wrong for us to be moved to pray because of the circumstances around us, because of the difficulties we run into in a fallen world, but we also want to be, become men and women who are moved to pray because of what we see God revealing to us through His Word. The second foundational principle is to pray humbly. Paul uses the expression, on my knees, as a figure of speech for when he prays, and it's just a figure of speech, and yet it is a reminder that when we go to the Lord in prayer, whatever posture we may be in physically at the time, we need to bow the knee in the heart to God's will and to His ways and His authority in our prayers. The third principle was to pray according to who God has revealed Himself to be. Now, in this paragraph, you see a number of different attributes of God on display. I chose to just narrow it down to one, and the fact that He is our Father. He is, as we just sang, He's a good, good Father, and we know He hears our prayers, and that even when He says no, the reason why He's saying no to us is because He does have a wise and loving plan for our best long-term interests, and so even His no's are motivated by a loving purpose. The, the fourth principle for effective prayer we learned last week is to pray for spiritual growth. Uh, that was the fourth point in our outline, and really, the rest of this week's sermon fleshes out what it means to pray for spiritual growth, because that's essentially what Paul is asking for for the Ephesian believers in verses 16 through 19 of this passage. In fact, let's look at those verses, but let's look at them in the context of the entire passage. Let's read the entire passage together, starting in Ephesians 3:14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is God's Word to us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as I try now to explain this portion of Scripture, help me to be faithful to Paul's intention of what he was praying for the Ephesians, and I believe also for all of us who read his letter. By the power of the Holy Spirit, please make what Paul prays here a reality in our lives. O oh, Father, save us from our infernal desire to try and remake you into our own moral image to justify ourselves, and instead, please remake us into the image of your Son, Jesus. We humbly ask this for our good and your glory in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, in this passage, there is a Greek conjunction, hina, it means in order that, in order that, so that, uh, and that conjunction marks the three prayer requests that Paul has for the Ephesians, and that's how I'm going to outline the passage. Paul, there's three so, that, so that's in the passage, and they mark out what Paul is asking for. Here are the three requests. If you, if you 
delete some of the words around the request and just get to the heart of the requests themselves, here are the three requests. Verse 16, that, the God, that God the Father would grant you to be strengthened in the inner man. Verse 17, that you would be able to comprehend and truly know the love Christ has for you. And verse 19, that you would be filled up to all the fullness of God. Those are Paul's requests. All the other words around those requests explain and fill out what he means when he's asking for those things. Now, there's also something else about these three requests I want you to see. They have a special relationship with one another. Uh, They are like steps on a ladder. They're all progressive. Uh, They build on top of one another, and you can't skip the, re- the requests that come before and then be filled up with all the fullness of God. And at the end of explaining them, I'm going to show you why that's the case grammatically. I'm not just making that up because I thought it would be an interesting thing to say. Uh, according to Paul's grammar, they build on one another, which means this. You can't comprehend the love of Christ for you if you haven't first been strengthened somewhat in the inner man. And you can't be filled to all the fullness of God if you still doubt Christ's love for you. So, these are things you have to take in order. And the very fact that they're in order reminds us of something that's very important as we consider spiritual growth. Uh, Spiritual growth in the Bible is often compared to physical growth. And physical growth is a process that happens in stages. As much as we might like to skip a stage of physical growth, like adolescence, and just go from childhood to adulthood, as much as we might like that, that's not how it works. And the same is true spiritually. There's, it's not overnight. It's not one and done. There's stages we have to go through as we progress from birth to physical maturity. And in the same way, there are distinct, uh, there's a distinct process that every, Christians have to go, every Christian has to go through from spiritual birth into spiritual maturity. Uh, by way of cross-reference, this is what makes 1 John 2 so insightful. If you remember 1 John 2, that's the portion of John, the Apostle John's letter to the churches where he gives a specific word of encouragement to three stages of uh, spiritual growth. He, he splits Christians up into three categories, and he gives a specific encouragement to those who are children in the faith, and then to those who are young adults in the faith, and then, a, and then a completely different encouragement to those who are mothers and fathers in the faith. And if you just look at what John says, it gives insight into where the apostle sees the three stages of spiritual growth uh, and, and what he sees in them, what happens along the way. And so, with that said, let's begin looking at these stages, starting with the first stage, Paul's first request, verse 16, that God the Father would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. Now, the fact that Paul is praying for our inner man, that immediately highlights the nature of our spiritual struggle. Our struggle is not primarily with external circumstances. It's not with our sufferings or our temptations. Our main problem is inside of us. Jesus addressed this in the book of Mark. Uh, If you remember during that whole controversy with the Pharisees about hand washing, in the middle of that controversy, Jesus said this in Mark 7, it's from within, out of the heart, that evil thoughts, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, and wickedness come from. What defiles us comes from within our hearts because it's out of the heart that all these sins come from, according to Jesus in Mark 7. Now, remember this about our Lord Jesus. He lived a life 
in uh, the same sinful world we do. He was tempted, if, uh, Hebrews says, he was tempted in every kind of way we are tempted, and yet he was without sin, which points to two things. I mean, first of all, it points to his perfection, but it also points to the fact that if he could get through it without sin, that means that our problem with sin is inside of us. It's not just something we can blame on what's going on around us. Now, when Paul speaks of the inner man here, he means the soul in contrast to the body. The best place to show you this would be 2 Corinthians 4.16, where Paul says, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. So, when Paul uses the term inner man here, he means the inner person of the heart in contrast to the body. He means your soul, your spirit, your mind, your heart, uh, the real you, the inner you. And here Paul's prayer for the inner man, the real you, is this, that God would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit. Now, all those modifying words are rich and help us understand what Paul's praying for, and I am not going to take the time to go through all of them, but let me just highlight a few of them. Uh, notice that Paul uses the words for power and for strength here. The word for power he use, uses in Greek, it just has to do with having the ability uh, to do something, being able to do something. Uh, but the word strengthened is an unusual one. It's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for places where the Hebrew is speaking of growing in strength, and it's used outside of Scripture by Philo to mean becoming strong through exercise. So, let's take those two things we understand about strength and put them together to, to come closer to what Paul's saying here. Paul is praying that our souls would grow strong by spiritual exercise. So, there is the idea of human responsibility here. In another place, Paul exhorts Timothy, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness, and the word he uses for discipline there descends into us in English as gymnasium. Exercise yourselves for the purpose of godliness, just like an athlete exercises to build strength and endurance. Uh, but notice also in the text that this idea is, yeah, the, the way that it comes across in translation, be strengthened through the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Greek word for strengthened here is used four times in the New Testament. And just like in this location, in the other three, it's always used in the passive voice. Uh, the whole point of be strengthened is that someone else is strengthening us here, and that someone else in this passage is the Holy Spirit. We must exercise our spiritual muscles in order to grow, but in the end, God is the one who makes us strong. We've been brought to spiritual life, and we make spiritual effort just like every Christian does but our growth is still a gift of God's grace. That's the point of the image, and that's the very point of the beginning of verse 16, right, where he says that He, that is God the Father, would grant you. You could also translate the word grant as gift, that He would give you this good gift of the Holy Spirit, strengthening your inner man even as you do spiritual exercises. So, the lesson here, I believe, is that we should pray for ourselves and for other Christians that as we do the spiritual exercises that all Christians do, that God, as a gift of His grace, would cause us to grow in the inner person, in the true self, that we would grow in love and wisdom and goodness. It was based on passages like this where we do exercising, but we depend on God for the growth, that St. Augustine prayed, Give me the grace, O Lord, to do as you command, and command me to do what you will. 
O holy God, when your commands are obeyed, it is from you that we receive the power to obey them. We need to make a clarification here. Christianity is not a personal self-improvement project where we attempt uh, to make ourselves better people morally only in our own effort. It's true that in salvation and sanctification, we do have responsibilities. In salvation, we have the responsibility to repent and believe. In sanctification, we have the responsibility to exercise our spiritual muscles through studying the Scriptures, through communing with God in prayer, through fellowshipping with other believers, being present for the Lord's Supper, through performing good works. But in both salvation and sanctification, God also has to act. He's the one who draws us to salvation by the Holy Spirit, and in sanctification, He works to transform us into the moral image of His Son through the Holy Spirit. So, in both cases, we work hard, but we can also say with the Apostle John, we love Him because He first loved us. Uh, Another example of this dynamic where we do the work, but we're also praying for God to help provide the strength and the growth. Another example would be Philippians 2, where Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. The word Paul uses for work out there in Philippians 2, it means to complete or to finish a process that's already in progress. So, the emphasis of the term is on the result of the work, not the process of it. It means that we're going to see something through to its proper end. And Paul is not communicating that we earn salvation by working it out. Rather, what he's communicating is this. He's communicating that we need to make the salvation God has worked in us operational through obedience like a student working out a math problem on a worksheet. Uh, In our home, I help with some of the math for homeschool, and uh, when my daughters are filling out, let's imagine for the sake of argument, they're filling out a long division question on a worksheet, okay? Well, when they go to do that, the solution to the problem is already established. If it's a smaller number, I might be able to just eyeball it and know what the answer is. But in order for the student to benefit from it, they have to work out the answer for themselves. That's what Paul is telling us to do. Work out the implications of your new life in Christ in the, in the unique, specific locations and relationships He's called you to by making your obedience operational. But we also get this encouragement. So, not only are we supposed to work, but we get the encouragement that God is also working in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. What does that mean? Well, that He's working in us to will means He's working on our wills. He's persuading our wills that His way and His wisdom is best and helping our wills grow strong in saying no to the flesh. And He's also uh, working in us for His good pleasure means He's working to transform us in the inner person. So, maybe we could, to be balanced, we'll try and say it this way. On the one hand, we do need to say, there, there are appropriate times to say to one another, the Holy Spirit won't obey the commands for you. He won't do the exercises for you. You have to do them. But on the other hand, even as we go about spiritual exercises, we know that we need the Holy Spirit to work in us if the exercises are going to do us any good. And what that, save, what that knowledge saves us from, it does two things. It drives us to prayer 
because if He's the one who provides the growth, we need to go to Him and pray for Him to provide the growth. But it also saves us from this futility of doing all the right things in prayerlessness and then wondering why the growth we were hoping for isn't there. So along with Paul, we should pray for ourselves and also for other Christians that God the Father would give us this good gift of being strengthened with power in the inner person. But growing in strength isn't where our spiritual journey ends. There's more. And so Paul prays that we would grow in comprehending and knowing that Christ truly loves us. He says in the middle of verse 17, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. The main idea here is that you would be able to comprehend and truly know the love Christ has for you. But let's look at these words. Again, there's a lot of words. Let's look at the way the words around those that uh, modify and help us understand this idea. Uh, Paul uses a lot of words here, and he identifies something that you actually have to have before you can comprehend the love of Christ. There is a prerequisite for understanding the love Christ has for you, and that prerequisite is being rooted and grounded. The words rooted and grounded are participles here that modify the main verb of being able to comprehend the love of Christ. So, before you're able to comprehend the love of Christ, you have to be rooted and grounded in love. What does that mean? Well, uh, to be rooted is an agricultural metaphor. The picture is of the individual Christian as a plant with a root system, and the root system is the underground organ of the plant that performs two functions. It anchors the plant, and then also it absorbs uh, water and nutrients from the soil that it transports to the rest of the plant. So the life of the Christian has to be anchored and secure in the love of Christ and be sustained by the nutrient-rich soil of Christ's words. And then the idea of being grounded, that comes straight out of the world of architecture, and it means literally just to build on the right foundation. It pictures the individual Christian's life being a building that has been carefully begun, it's still in process, but it's been carefully begun on a proper level foundation. So, a person has to be anchored in and secure in the firm foundation of Christ's love. Now, in salvation, we all experience that. I think what Paul is uh, pointing out here is that you can't experience this if you're not a Christian. And this is where we need to say, and this, is, this actually hurts me to say, but I'm going to say it. Um, so, I love apologetics, and I believe we have a reasonable faith. I believe that we can reason with people who don't know Jesus about why uh, Christ came for us, how it all adds up, how this explains the reality we see around us and the world around us. I believe we have a very reasonable faith. But there are some times where if we're really going to be honest, we need to tell people this truth. There are some things about Christianity you cannot understand until you believe. Now, it's not, it's not most of it, it's not the whole ballgame, but there are a few things in Christianity you have to believe before you can understand it. And one of those things is Christ's love. You have to experience Christ's love in the new birth before you can fully comprehend His love for you. Before then, it'll just be uh, a knowledge that the Scriptures claim that Jesus claims He loves us, right? Uh, but you have to experience Christ's love through the new birth. But once you've experienced it, it then puts you in a better position to be able to comprehend its breadth and length and height and depth. Uh, breadth and length and height and depth are the four magnitudes that help us understand the volume 
of anything, right? And so, Paul wants us to begin to grasp. That's actually another way you could translate the word comprehend, uh, the Greek word for comprehend, grasp. He wants us to be able to begin to grasp the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ for us. Uh, now, I don't think that's something we can ever completely comprehend, but he, Paul th- seems to think we can make a good start of it. And the hymn writer that I think best, uh, uh, best helps us comprehend the volume of the love of Christ is the hymn writer who penned these words, "'Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry.'" nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Perhaps we'll never be able to fully comprehend all of Christ's love, but through salvation and through prayer and through divine intervention, the work of the Holy Spirit, we can begin to comprehend it. But notice that Paul isn't just after comprehension. He's not just after us grasping it. In verse 19, he uses the word, no. Now, confession. I will concede that this Greek word no in the New Testament, it can be used at times for factual knowledge. That is true. But it is used more often in the New Testament of personal, experiential, intuitive knowledge. Let me give you an example. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word is used for Adam knowing his wife Eve and her giving birth to a son. This is the word for intimate knowledge. It's also the word for experiential knowledge. Uh, Maybe a good illustration in our world would be riding a bike, okay? So, if you never learned, if for some reason uh, you've never learned how to ride a bike and you're looking at it and wondering, like, okay, how do you you ride a bike? You can look at it and see someone riding and realize, okay, you got to move the pedals to get forward motion, and there's only two wheels, so obviously some balance is involved here. And you would have a head knowledge of riding a bike, but there is a sense in English where we can also say, but you don't know how to ride a bike. You, that you do have a knowledge about what the physics are of riding a bike, but you don't know how to do it. There's a certain balance and feel you have to learn to ride a bike well. Uh, well, the same thing is going on here. Paul is talking about an experiential, intimate, personal knowledge that Christ really does love me. To be clear then, I believe Paul's prayer here about knowing the love of Christ is not just a prayer for cognition. It isn't just that they'd have factual knowledge that Christ claims He loves them. It isn't just a cold, clinical, academic knowledge that Paul speaks of here. I believe it's a warm, intimate, experiential knowledge of the love of Christ. He wants them to know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, they're not guessing, that Christ really loves them. He wants them to know by scripturally informed intuition that Jesus does love them. Now, Paul doesn't develop why it's important for them to know Christ loves them in this passage, but other passages of the New Testament talk about why this is so important. I guess you could say, let me back up, check that. Uh, I guess in the, the implication of the passage is you can't Uh, grow up to the fullness of God uh, if you don't know the love of Christ. But he doesn't really elaborate on why it's important. But let me take you to just a couple passages that show why it's important. In uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, Paul says, "'For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and He died for all, so that they who live would no longer live for themselves.'" 
but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. One of the reasons Christ died for us is so that we wouldn't waste the rest of our lives only living for ourselves, you know, uh, refining and massaging our own self-preoccupation. He died to save us uh, from wasting our life in selfishness and self-focus. He died to free us uh, from our self-love. And when Paul says there, the love of Christ controls us, another way you could translate it would be this, the love of Christ motivates us. The love of Christ is a powerful motivator for helping me uh, quit just looking out for number one and be freed up to notice the interests and concerns and fears and desires of the people around me and do a better job loving them. It's a powerful motivator for loving others. Um, I've shared with you before, I think I shared this in adult Sunday school last week, uh, but I'll share it again. Uh, Whenever I catch my mind running away, running out of control. It almost feels like my mind is out of control with its thoughts, uh, with its anxieties, when, I, when my mind runs away with anxieties. One of the things I do when I finally catch myself and realize what I'm doing and I, I got to stop it, one thing I do is I like to counsel myself by using a thought experiment. And the thought experiment is this. I'll stop and say to myself, Chris, if what you're afraid of actually were to come to pass, what do you still know to be true? And often the answers I give run along these lines. Um, I know that God has promised His presence and His grace, so I won't be alone. Christ has said He'll never leave me or forsake me. I know that He'll give me the grace to get through this in a way that honors Him and that ends up working out in the long run for the good of my soul, for the good of my, maybe not for my body, maybe not for my finances, but for my inner person, this will be good. Um, I know that nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. I know that a day is coming when Christ will wipe away every tear and He'll create a new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem where righteousness dwells and there is no suffering, no more suffering or pain, and I'll get to enjoy that. I, I know all that is true. That can't be taken away. And so, uh, that's the way that I like to counsel myself and talk myself down off a ledge of anxiety. Now, let's stop for a moment and just think, let's analyze that counsel I'm giving myself. When my mind is spinning out of control with my anxieties, how helpful is the truth that nothing can separate me from the love of Christ if I'm not convinced Christ loves me? That's not going to help me. If I'm not convinced Christ loves me, how much of a motivator is it going to be for me to not just keep living for myself, but to live for other people because Him who died and rose again on my behalf wants me to do that? It's not going to work, right? So, you have to be convinced that Christ loves you. If you still doubt Christ loves you, if you're still having a crisis of faith over that, it produces things downstream that have consequences. And so, understanding the love of Christ for us is very important if we're going to be filled up to all the fullness of God, which is the third request, verse 19, that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Now, let's talk about all the fullness of God for a moment. Let's start with what it doesn't mean, right? What does the fullness of God not mean? It doesn't mean that we become gods or that we possess God's perfections to the extent or to the degree He does. It doesn't mean that God becomes us or that all of God's essential being then fills us. Uh, If you'll allow the rest of the New Testament to define Paul's request here, it means that you and I can enjoy some of the fullness of God's moral attributes, the moral attributes that He shares with people created in His image. It means we can begin to love like God loves. We can begin to share in His 
holiness and his separation from evil uh, as God is separate from evil. We can begin to uh, be good like God, to be merciful to others, to extend undeserved grace to others like God does. We can share in his moral character. So, the idea of being filled with the fullness of God is used this way, and it's used this way in parallel passages, in other passages of the New Testament, to talk about being renewed into the image of God or of the image of God that was marred in the fall being restored in us, or this way that I think all of you are much more familiar with. This kind of language is used to talk about us becoming like Christ, uh, bearing the moral reflection, the moral stamp of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn over to Ephesians 4.11, and I'll show you. Uh, This is a portion of the letter where Paul is talking about God's design for the church. And in Ephesians 4, verse 11, he says, and this is about what Christ has done as Lord of the church for the church, He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists as some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So, the Father's goal for you is that you would become spiritually mature and bear the stamp of the fullness of Christ's moral character. To be filled with all the fullness of God means to share in the moral attributes of His that human beings can share in. That's the goal, and that's what Paul prays for the Ephesians. Now, I said at the very beginning that these three requests are cumulative. They build on one another, and I want to prove that to you now. I'm not just making that up. It's in the grammar of the text. Paul says, in essence, for this reason, I'm praying for you so that you'll be strengthened, so that you'll know the love of Christ for you, so that you'll be filled with all the fullness of God. The fact that he keeps using so that, why is this important? Well, so that this will happen. Why is this important? So that that happens. They all build on one another like the rungs of a ladder. So, what that would mean by way of implication is this, our souls have to be made strong before we can perceive the love of Christ for us, and we have to know that Christ loves us before we can be filled with all the fullness of God. So, to understand Paul's words here, we need to understand that only God can make us like Christ, and yet there are still responsibilities you and I have in the process. There are still ways that we can cooperate with the purposes of God and uh, work at the very spiritual growth He's building into every single one of His children. What are those responsibilities? Well, there are a number of them by way of application, but allow me to highlight just one in closing, just one by way of application for us this morning, and it's the most obvious one from the passage and from the Apostle Paul's example. Pray for spiritual growth. Pray this for yourself. Pray this for your brothers and sisters here at Grace Fellowship. This is how you can pray for Grace Fellowship Church. Yes, I'm an ambitious pastor, and I would love to see us grow numerically, but what I'd love even more than that is for us to grow spiritually in holiness, in obedience to the truth, and let God take care of the numbers, right? Like, like pray for spiritual growth here at Grace Fellowship Church. The, I think it's instructive. The Apostle Paul wanted the Ephesians to grow, and so based on his desire to see them grow spiritually, what did he do? Did he instruct them? Well, yes, he did. He used his apostolic authority, moved by the Holy Spirit to instruct them, but he also 
prayed for them. And if you go back and you look at his prayer in chapter 1, and then you look at this one in uh, chapter 3, and you pay close attention to the implication of his words, the implication of his words is, uh, the implications of his words are this. The truth of the Apostle Paul's inspired words uh, to the Ephesians isn't enough. The truth of his words have to be accompanied by prayer for the words to find a home in the heart of the people who read this letter. The truth of the words is useless without the Holy Spirit uh, uh, giving us an outpouring of grace and without the grant of God's blessing. So, please pray for spiritual growth at Grace Fellowship Church. Pray that as a church family, we would grow in holiness and obedience to the truth. Pray that each member would be strengthened in the inner man so that we could comprehend and truly know the love of Christ for us. Pray that the image of God in us that's been marred by our own sin and rebellion would be restored so that we could share in the fullness of God's moral attributes. Pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, each one of us would become more like Christ. Let's close in prayer.